<laughs> Welcome to Access to Justice. I'm your host, Heather Malarek of Merrick Law. Um, I'm joined today by my co-host, Evan Clark of Kahane Law. Hey, Evan, how's it going? Hey, Heather, it's going great. Um, just, just enjoying everything in life. I decided to, um, I said I wasn't busy enough with, you know, running my own business and, mm-hmm. and everything. So I decided to teach on a basic training again, a weekend basic training, because I thought, you know, what else do I have to do on the weekends? Right. So, other than more work. Yeah. So that's happening until like March or something. It's like two or three weekends a month. Oh my. Yeah. I haven't done it for a few years. Um, and last weekend was the first weekend and man, by Sunday, I was like, I was very tired. Hmm. Well, I thought that folks all went out to Ontario for basic training or is this a different kind of training? I don't know. Like, uh, they do basic training all over the country Hmm. for reservists. Certainly right. Force generally go to St. John. Oh, okay. She's in Quebec. Oh, Uh, they have like a big, uh, super complex there. So that's where all the right force people go. Yeah. That's where all the push-ups happen. Yeah. So, but the reserves, like I did my basic training in Chilliwack. Yeah. Which is, doesn't happen all that often these oh. days. And a lot of people do them in full time in the summertime, which is what I did, but in Wainwright, but we also do them sometimes on the weekends for those people that have full-time jobs that would be more difficult for them to get away full-time in the summertime. And so we run that out of our local armories. I did not know that. Well, that's interesting. Well, but how are you doing? Good luck to you. Uh, I'm doing well. We uh, adopted, we were just chatting with our guest a little bit before about pets. We adopted a second cat a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, because why not? Yeah, why not? We fell in love with him. Um, and uh, But I have to report that we have a successful integration. Two boy cats. They were two years old each. I didn't know that how well it was going to go, but we kept them apart and slowly introduced them as per the Google rules. And Google, <laughs> you know, I mean, it worked. They <laughs> we followed the procedure and they are running around and playing and having a grand old time. But... My pre-existing cat was very um, well-behaved, and this one is a little bit of a rogue. He's a little bit of a troublemaker. So, um, yeah, he likes to jump up on my desk and tap on my keyboard and stuff. So, <laughs> very exciting. Yeah, I'm now vastly outnumbered as well, males to females. It's just me in the house with two boy kitties, two boys, and my husband. So, I'm just calling everybody, everyone else's name, and everybody's just having to deal with it i'm sure i'm sure your husband loves being called the cat's names yeah he does yeah (laughs) um we're also joined today by our regular special guest kim mcdonald of mcdonald advisory kim is a financial advisor and insurance advisor with raymond james limited hi kim how are you doing hi heather i'm doing great thanks for having me on the program Happy to be back. This is super fun. I'm excited to hear about the farm growing. Uh, what was your cat's name? What did you name the cat? 
He came with the name Roly Poly because he just flops over for love and belly scratches anytime he sees any human, but we renamed him Murray. <laughs> Murray. Yeah. Yeah. Adorable. I think that that's a little bit easier to call out, uh, especially if we're doing a podcast and he strolls in and you kind of need to give him that, you know, that look and that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, you know, that. I don't know if we call it yelling. You kind of do like this funny little thing where you just sort of somehow can communicate with your eyeballs. But uh, I think Murray will have an easier time. <laughs> no, usually, <laughs> usually what usually, it is. I usually put a mug yeah. in front of my face. Usually she mutes <laughs> it and then screams. Murray, <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> so Murray, Murray needs to know that you mean business. So I think that name's uh, better. And uh, I'm excited that you brought another pet into the family. This is amazing. <laughs> Yeah, maybe if you really want Murray to know you're stern, you need to give him a middle and last name as well. Uh, Yes, we're working on that. And he really knows when he's in trouble when you use all three names. That's yeah, Murray, Murray, Evan, something like that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's going to have to be a pre-existing name in the family already because I can't remember anymore. So. Well, without further ado, I would like to welcome our guest to today's uh, program. We're joined today by Lucy Aruda of Axiom Mortgages. Lucy has been a full-time mortgage broker for over 15 years, and I'm so excited to have her here to share all of her mortgage knowledge and wisdom with us. Welcome, Lucy. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here and get to chat and, and share information with everybody. It's definitely um, a very important thing to me to teach people about mortgages and, and basically it's financial literacy, right? To know about mortgages, know about your credit. So I'm looking forward to sharing that information with you and ask away, ask any questions, any burning questions that you have. <laughs> Great. Well, we're so excited to have you. Thank you so much for coming on. My first question is what is your current cat situation? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. Not mitt and see, and I like actually my husband's the one who's outnumbered around here because we've got uh well my oldest is is well she got married in July, so she's out of the house now, but then I have a 16-year-old at home, uh daughter, and then I've got uh my my three cats and two dogs and they're all girls my oldest cat will be three next month and the twins we were only going to go out last year to get it was last august to get one extra cat Uh went to a couple of different rescues and then we saw this these cute little kittens they were so adorable like we're gonna only take one just one because we don't know how mittens is going to react but then we noticed that they were bonded and they've been um, in the rescue since they were, I think, two days old. So they were hand raised by a fo- their foster mom from two days old, them and their brother. And the brother had already been adopted out. The girls were definitely bonded. So we brought them home and Mittens didn't like them. And <laughs> so they now play, but it took probably six to nine months for them to actually start playing together. Um, yeah, it was, it was very interesting. I was very stressed for the first while, uh, trying to keep them separated and, you know, not have any confrontations, but you know, now they play, they get along every so often you, you hear a hiss or you, you see someone 
bad at each other, but that's okay. Cause you know, there's no fur flying that's good. There. <laughs> and it's mostly just play. Like no one's ever been hurt or injured or scratched really badly. Um, my biggest dog, she, uh, she thinks she's a cat. She now behaves like a cat. You know, she cleans herself after she eats, tries to scratch at the grass before she goes to the bathroom. <laughs> that is so cute. Yeah. I think she was also adopted. So I think that maybe at some point when she was a baby that she was maybe around other cats. And now with our cats, it's kind of rekindled that again. And she thinks she's a giant cat. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's very cute. It sounds like you have a bit of um, um, uh, tense piece in your home. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's always fun. It's always fun, and, and it's definitely a little mini zoo around here with two dogs, three cats, and two birds. But uh, you know, it definitely keeps um, keep, it keeps us on our toes with everything that there is to do. <laughs> Oh, oh, fun. Well, I, I love animals and I love hearing about people's pets. So thank you for sharing. Okay. But, but down to business. Let's oh, yeah, get sure, yeah. started then. Okay. <laughs> this will be a, pet, a, a cat podcast before you know it. <laughs> okay. um, Share all our pictures. What, where would you like to start? Like, should we start talking about what is a mortgage? What are the different types of lenders? What do you do as a broker? Well, that's a very good question. As a broker, what I do is I work as a middleman between the client and the lenders. Uh, typically, we don't charge. Mortgage brokers don't charge our clients for our services. We work for free for them because we get paid a finder's fee from the lender after the mortgage is completed. So if for some reason the mortgage isn't completed, whether it's the property didn't work out, um, the client doesn't qualify, maybe the client got cold feet, doesn't want to do any more uh, shopping, you know, the rates are going up, I don't know what's happening, uh, then we don't get paid. We've basically worked for free, but wow. we act as the middleman for them. Um, we shop around for the best product, the best well, rate um, service, because sometimes it's the client too, that decides that, you know what, I'm, I really want someone who, um, you know, I can, I can have online access to my mortgage and other clients, they don't care whether they have online access. Some clients want to have, um, an actual branch to be able to go into. So they need to go into a traditional bank or, or credit union, something like that. So that's what I do. Um, the only time that we would ever charge a fee is if they had to go to a private lender or a, sometimes a B lender that won't pay us, then we have to charge our clients so that we can get paid. But there's lots of different lenders out there and lots of them that um, clients don't even know about because we've got... Basically, we've got monolines, the big banks, we've got credit unions, B lenders, and private lenders. And everybody knows the big banks. They know what they're all about. Um, they deal with the typical A files uh, where you've got great credit, you've got uh, income that's verifiable, a very straightforward type of file. Um, they are... I guess the most common that clients know about, but what clients don't know about is monolines, which for, um, I think the growing population, they're becoming more popular. Monolines are a lenders. They, they do lend to clients who have verifiable income. They've got great credit. Um, 
they they get their funding and their money from their investors as opposed to the banks that they use their deposits they have on um, on account. Um, but they are also called fair penalty lenders because they calculate their penalties very differently. If for some reason you need to get out of your mortgage, um, you know, it'd be wonderful if you won the lottery and you need to pay off your mortgage. You don't really care what your penalty is, but it's nice to have a smaller penalty. The monolines will um, will cal- calculate it a little bit differently than the big banks. And so you'll have a much smaller penalty. Um, monolines also have access to really cool products um, like the spousal buyout product. Um, they'll also have different types of mortgages for self-employed people that don't have verifiable income. Um, sometimes I'll have a client who um, is a contractor or owns their own business and they they don't collect all their money uh, like like the regular way with a pay stub or anything like that. They'll get paid cash or they just don't claim all their income on their personal taxes. They retain it in the company. A regular bank is not going to be able to do anything with that. But with monolines, they will be able to offer a program to be able to facilitate that for the clients. So I really like monolines because they tend to have lower rates because they only concentrate on mortgages, hence the monoline. Their their penalties are also a lot lower because they are specialists. um, They only deal with mortgages. So they're going to also, in a lot of cases, give you better service as well because that's all they focus on. You know, think of it this way. If you have a problem with, you know, allergies, you're going to go to a specialist. If something with your uh, immunity, you're going to go to a, a doctor that specializes in that. So they're going to give you the, the best service. Well, that's what one, monolines will do, right? They'll hmm. concentrate on that where you go to a bank, you might get someone who's going to um, you know, do a mortgage this week, but all week they, they've been doing, you know, bank account openings, bank cards, RSPs, things like that. And so they're more generalists. So they're not going to specialize and necessarily give you the best, the best advice. And the advice that we give is very unbiased as well. So like I said, sometimes clients will want to go to a bank specifically because they want to be able to go into a bank because uh, monolines do not have actual works and mortar. You know, they don't, you can't go into an actual uh, office or anything like that. Um so yeah, the, the monolines are one, the banks are another. Credit unions are also common for, for clients. Um, more rural places, uh, if you purchase in more rural places, we'll have to go to um, something like Service Credit Union or Alberta Treasury Branch. Um, B lenders only come into effect if the client's got 20% down or more, and they've got a specific situation where you know maybe they can't provide you with enough proof of income. Um, sometimes it ends up being like, you know, a foster mom or something. I had one time uh, a foster mom who did not claim any of the income that she was earning from being a foster mom. So we had to collect all the bank statements instead for a full year because on her taxes, she didn't put it in there. So none of the A lenders would do it. So we had to go to a B lender to do it. And that means a slightly higher interest rate, um, but they will look at different things like a pace, um, a bank statement instead of a pay stub, um, a bank statement instead of your taxes. But like I said, it does come with a higher interest rate on that. Hmm. Um, they do allow you to go over on your debt ratios, uh, which with other lenders are very strict, but again, it gives us a little bit more flexibility. 
right? To with which lender we can go to. Um, so the other like one. There's, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. I was gonna say there's a private lender. Um, oh. Private lenders are like the last one, and with B lenders and private lenders, those are the ones that usually will end up charging for it because they don't pay us. Um, but those ones are for very specific situations. They charge a lot, close to 10% interest rate. Um, you have to have usually 20, 30% down. And um, another piece about it, oh, they can go to like 30, 35 year amortization, but those are all uh, short-term mortgages. They always want an exit strategy because they know the client isn't going to want to pay 10% for 10 years, for five years, right? On a five-year mortgage. So they usually ask us, well, what's your client's exit strategy? What is the issue? Maybe the issue is credit and we need to improve credit, or maybe the issue is employment because they don't verify credit and they don't verify employment. It's all based on equity. It's equity lending. So they want to know, well, what's your plan? Okay, this is my plan. I'm working with my client on improving their credit or the client, um, you know, has only been on the job for two months, but within a year's time, you know, they'll have been there for over a year. So now we can, we, we can go, go ahead and go to a regular lender. So yes, um, there's lots of different types of lenders out there. Okay, so let's go, let's go back to monoline for a second. Cause you just kind of went, Oh yeah, they're way better than everyone else. Yeah, they are. <laughs> <laughs> so like, why isn't everybody doing monoline mortgages? Like, uh, yeah. Well, most of my clients get placed with monolines, um, because I educate them on it. The problem is that a lot of clients will end up going to the bank because they automatically think that the bank is going to give them the best rate and the best service. But what the clients don't know is that that's not the case. Just because you've been banking there for 20 years, that they're going to give you the best rate. They will give you the rate that they can. Um, they're also not going to tell you that how they charge their penalty. Right. They're not going to tell you, oh, by the way, this is how we do our calculation. And we are usually, you know, four times greater than the monoline that your broker suggested. <laughs> Clients don't realize that, but they automatically think that the bank is the best rate, the most fair one for penalties, and they don't know any better. So it's an education piece. I actually have um, an example because I had two clients around the same time with almost identical sizes of mortgages and they were paying them out. They weren't paying them out. We were transferring them to different lenders. One was with one of the big banks and one was with a monoline and the penalties were about on the monoline. It was about one third of what the big bank was charging. Same amount of time left over same approximate, same balance, but this is something that the clients just don't know because nobody ever talks about it. Right. I'm finding it really hard to believe that there are grown up people out there who believe that the, they're going to get the best service experience at one of the major banks in Canada. That is totally inconsistent with my experience with banks. They're the worst. They're the absolute worst. They pay their, they pay their employees as little as possible, overwork them. And um, yeah, I just, I find that really surprising that people, that there are people out there that think like, oh yeah, I just love my CIBC person that I don't even have a person because they don't work there anymore. Yeah. I don't know. 
Yeah. yeah, I suspect there's a lot of trust out there, right? That's just come from a generation or two generations before of of banks and and yeah. those folks. And these monolines are newer products. I'm... Well, that's what they think. There's one lender out there that they've been around for 40 years. They first uh-huh. started lending commercially and then got into the residential space. Uh-huh. Most lenders have been around for 20 years, but nobody knew about them a long time ago like back in the 90s when I started in banking, uh, mortgage brokers were thought of as the people you go to if you can't get a mortgage at the bank. Yeah. But over time, what's happened is we gained more traction, got more people, mortgages, really, really good mortgages. And we actually made the banks more competitive because Mm -hmm. these monolines came out with better interest rates. So it's like, oh no, we're losing some market share. And now we need to lower our rates as well to keep up with the monolines. Mm. So things have changed dramatically. And I worked for one of the major lenders for 15 years. Um, and five of those years was as a road warrior for them. So that's like a mortgage specialist, not licensed or anything. And keep in mind too, that's another thing is when you go to the bank, you are getting just an employee. You're getting someone who has a label that sounds misleadingly like um, an official title that is regulated. Yes. Right? Like not quite like CFP or mortgage broker, but mortgage specialist. And, you know, I don't know what they get away with, Kim, for like financial planning, but they have some fake names in there as well that make people think that they're not just like a, you know, employee with minimal training. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And I I remember when I was doing mortgages with that particular lender, that there was really no training uh, in addition to what I had when I worked in the branch. Uh, But when you become a mortgage broker, you have to pass an exam. And because I'm also an AMP, which is an accredited mortgage professional, I also have extra credits that I have to work for every single year. So, you know, you have all these different things that you're constantly keeping up to date on, yet you go to the branch and you have absolutely nothing because they, you know, they don't have the education. They don't have the training. They just have hands-on training, but it's, it's unfortunately the way that the branch world works. And a lot of clients, like I said, they don't realize what the bank actually does and the discounts, like they're not going to give you the best rate right up front. They, they, they're going to make you work for it. Uh, And maybe they might give you a good rate and maybe they won't give you a good rate. Um, A lot of times it's the, that inducement, right? They'll hold that carrot in front of you and say, yeah, come over here. We're going to give you a really good rate. And then when your mortgage comes up for renewal, they give you a super high rate. And I'm working with a client right now. That's exactly the case. I set him up with a monoline. 10 years ago, when his mortgage came up for renewal, one of the big banks enticed him in, gave him a a good deal from what he thought was anyhow. And his mortgage came up for renewal again now, and they jacked up the rate higher than everybody else. Transfer him out again. But it's it's a lot of education. And that's what I really strive to do because it is my passion to educate my clients. Why do we do this? You know, why do I go to monolines? But you know, definitely if my client says no, I need to go to this particular bank. As long as we deal with that particular institution, then I'll definitely place them there. But I will also let them know that sometimes it's turnaround times are ridiculously high. So, oh, you need an approval in a week? Sorry, this lender isn't even picking up files for one week. Um, if you think you might need to move or you might somehow need to pay out the mortgage for whatever reason, 
especially if it's a client that transfers within provinces or even I have clients who've transferred between the U.S. and here. If it's those clients, they might need to pay out that mortgage because you can't take your mortgage to the States. And then you're going to have a high penalty. And the last thing I want is my clients to come to me, any mortgage worker. We don't want our clients to come back to us and say, you know, hey, you put me at this in the, in the wrong type of mortgage or the wrong type of lender. And now I have to pay this enormous penalty. We've all heard the stories that have been on the news in the past few years, um, especially like when COVID happened. There was a, a realtor in Ontario who had, um, she wasn't doing well. Obviously when COVID happened, it was a rough time and she had to sell her home. I think her penalty was something like $20,000 with one of the big banks and everyone was up in arms. And, you know, the rest of us who know how this works, we're like, yeah, that's pretty typical with that particular lender because Mm -hmm. all the big banks, that's how they calculate their penalties. But it's an education piece. And it's, uh, you know, sometimes I'll lose a client because the client says, well, my parents have been banking with bank ABC for the past 30 years. They're going to take really good care of me. Um, like okay, yeah. <laughs> no, I can't change their mind. Lucy, everyone knows you get the best rates and the lowest penalties at RBC, CIBC, Scotia Bank, BMO. Am I missing any? <laughs> <Me? Jeez. laughs> ATV. Yeah, no, like that's definitely common knowledge, even though it's incorrect. Yeah, you that's know? what a lot of people think. Yeah. Like what you said, what you said of like, Oh, people just assume that you go to a mortgage broker when you can't get lending. Yeah. That, that certainly has changed, but the impression that you go with a bank unless, uh, unless they won't approve you because they're the best deal, they're going to have the lowest rates. That's something that I knew for sure until you came on here. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm able to. When people are looking at their mortgage statements and they're listening to the podcast, learning about mono lines, who, like, who would you say are the, the three biggest mono line companies? I'm aware of MCAP, but, um, I, like, I don't look at mortgage statements all that often. And I think people are probably now wondering, like, am I with a mono line or a B lender or like, who am I with? Yeah, no, there's, there's MCAP. They're very large. There's First National, uh, Merricks and Lendwise. Merricks and Lendwise are kind of one in the same. They just pay us differently. One's up front and one is after the fact. Um, like they pay trailer fees. Um, let's see what else. A Strive is a new monoline that's come out. I haven't even used them yet, uh, but there, there's quite a few. There's a CMLS, uh, RMG. RMG used to be Street Capital. So there's so, so many, and they're all excellent. And they've all got their own their own things that they will specialize in. Some are a little bit better with self-employed clients. Uh, some are a little bit better with doing uh, purchase plus improvements files, Um, the way that they do things, the way that they uh, require the appraisals to be ordered, things like that. So we've all got our preferred monolines that we go to. Um, Like I have a preferred monoline that I go to because I have a, uh, an underwriter that works with just a very small group from Axiom. So, you know, you're going to get things looked at very quickly. I know that if I have a rush file, he'll work till seven, eight o'clock at night just to get it done for me. Mm-hmm. So if I have a client who says, and I'm like, I, I have to have an approval in three days because, you know, my bank fell through. I hear that a lot. <laughs> I know who I can send it to. Right. So that's the nice thing too, of working with a mortgage broker is we can go to multiple people if we need to. Right. Uh, we, we don't have to say, okay, yeah, I can only go send it to bank a, no, I can, I can send to bank 
B, C, or D. And when I say bank loosely, it's more of a monoline or or a mortgage lender. Um, Sometimes it's rate sensitive. I had to send one file out to a lender that just recently started dealing in Edmonton. They're from Calgary. And it was a just, like I said, a very rate sensitive file. The clients were very particular. Um, but you know what? I had that ability to do that. <laughs> and if you just walk into your branch and they tell you, yeah, they'll get back to you in two weeks. So you really don't have a choice. Right. And you're losing all this time. If you go to your branch, you have to go and book an appointment. You have to wait for them to get back to you. A lot of the documents you have to go in and sign in person where with a mortgage broker, we do everything unless the client really wants us to meet them in person, but we'll do everything over a DocuSign or faxing documents. That still does happen. We still do fax things if needed, (laughs) but most of the time it's over DocuSign and it just makes the client's experience so much better, so much smoother and they save time, right? And to me, it's that saving time and giving you peace of mind um, while saving money, right? Those are Mm -hmm. really important things for, for all of us nowadays, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you've covered a lot of probably the factors you want to be looking at when you're considering a lender. And I think the message I'm taking away is go see someone like Lucy so they can help identify the things that might be important to you in your situation. Um, as far as getting a, a lender, those the flexible things that you might need in there. Um, but to turn that around a little bit, what are lenders looking at when they're considering whether or not and how much to advance to a potential mortgage? I always get that wrong. Mortgagee? Mortgagee. Mortgagee. Thank you. That's like employee. Because employee and employer. That's how I get it. So there's, we loosely look at a bunch of different things. But when we went to school, we, you know, like you can learn in school because I went through finance. And when we went through uh, our broker training, we learn everything that they look at. And it's what we do all the time. And I do it without even thinking about it because I've been doing this for so long, but we look at character, right? The character of the client, um, you know, how is their credit? When you look on their credit bureau, do they pay their bills on time? And we're not just looking at, you know, do you pay your cell phone on time and your one credit card, but all your debts, even in the past, have you done a good job of paying your bills on time? Because it does record it on your credit bureau. Um, how long have you been on your job or do you, you know, have you been there for a year or do you jump from job to job? Because we need to establish stability, right? And lenders will actually look up clients on Google and social media accounts and stuff like that. Cause they want to know who they're looking at, right? Who are we going to lend the, you know, $400,000 to, um, especially if you're self-employed, they're going to look up your company. They're going to look up everything about that company. You know, is it a, fly by night kind of company, you know, is everything looking good with that particular company that you're working for? Um, I had one client who was working for, um, it was, it was, I'm not going to say who it was, but it was, there's a couple of companies that are very similar to it. And my underwriter wasn't hundred percent sure. He's like, calls me up and he goes, Lucy, I, I don't know about this one. Is he working for this company that was just on the news and they're laying off a bunch of people? And I'm like, no, 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 that's, that's this company. So it's, you know, it was a slightly different name, but very similar, but they'll look up things like that because they want to make sure that they're lending to someone that's going to have a job. The last thing that the lender wants to do is give you a mortgage. And then three months later, you lose your job and you can't make payments, right? Right. Um, We want to make sure that 
we're all on the same page, right? So that's what's your, your character. Like, you know, what's your ability to uh, pay back your, your mortgage based on your character? And then there's capacity. Um, that's actually the ability to pay back the mortgage. So that's when we do our debt servicing ratios, which we look at what your mortgage payment would be, what your property taxes would be, a heat allowance that we have to add in there. And then we also do a calculation with all of your debt um, with minimum payments and loan payments, things like that. Again, we want to make sure that you're not over extending yourself. Um, we look at the capital, uh, which is your down payment. You know, how much of a down payment are you putting down on the house? And where is it coming from? You know, is it getting gifted to you from family or did you actually save that money yourself? Because it looks better if you actually saved those funds yourself than if you're just getting it as a gift. One thing that people don't realize is that the lenders and we look at what your collateral is. The collateral is actually the house. Um, most people don't realize that you can actually have a file fall through um, if the collateral is bad. I had a file many years ago. The client was purchasing a property and everything looked great. My clients were repeat clients. I know they were, they were awesome. They had great credit, great income. We had no issues. They put an offer on the property and then the default insurer came back. So this wasn't the lender, it was the default insurer. So like there's three default insurers. One is CMHC that everybody knows about. Okay. Uh, there's GE, well now it's Sajin because they changed their name and there's Canada Guarantee. So one of them came back and they said, yeah, no, we've already seen this property before and we uh, can't approve this mortgage. And I was like, what? what do you mean you can't approve it? So how did you see this? Well, it came through on a different file just previously, just like a month ago or so. And they said, we had it inspected and there's a giant crack in the foundation that can't be fixed. So they said, no, that's not good collateral for us. We're not mm. going to approve it. So it had nothing to do with my wonderful clients. And even the inspector that they had did not know about it. So it was just a fluke. Somehow it had gone through to the default insurer before and their inspector hadn't seen it. Like my client's inspector hadn't noticed this. So huh. it was something very specific, but it can happen. So whenever clients put offers on homes and they don't put a subject to financing, that's very worrisome because financing isn't just about getting the money and you being a, a good borrower. It's also about the collateral, right? The collateral is very, very important because it's their security. Um, and then the final thing that lenders will look at is conditions. You know, they'll look at the economy, what's going on in the world. Uh, they'll look at the housing market, what's going on there. They'll look at um, the type of mortgage and the condition for that mortgage. Uh, so if you're doing a refinance, what are you using the refinance money for? Are you paying more debt off um, or are you doing renovations to your home? Because obviously paying more some debt off, or I'm, I want to take a hundred thousand dollars from my house. Cause I want to go buy a boat or invest in pot stocks or something. They, they might be a little bit more leery about lending you that extra hundred thousand dollars <laughs> in refinance. Um, you know, and if you're doing a purchase plus improvements, they'll also want to know, well, what kind of improvements are you planning on doing? And is it going to add value to their collateral again? Right. So is their collateral until we pay off that mortgage, we don't fully own the house. They're really the owners and we're, we're kind of renting it from them in a way. Wow. That's how to, a good way to think of a mortgage is you're kind of renting it from the bank, <laughs> from the lender. Right. Until it's paid off. Yeah, exactly. 
So are there things that folks can do before they're going to lenders or purchasing a home that would improve them on any or all of these uh, C's so yeah. that they might get a better mortgage rate or or yeah. be extended more credit? Definitely. One of the things that would be great is to get a, a pre-approval. And even before we do the pre-approval, if the client keeps up to date with their credit scores, um, get your credit score directly from uh, from Equifax and from TransUnion. Don't go to BorrowWell or Credit Karma or any of those places that tell you that they can get you your credit score because they're never accurate. And lenders only use Equifax and TransUnion. Um, and if, he, if the client doesn't want me to pull a credit bureau and they want to give me their report, I can't use that either. It has to be directly from me to the lender. And the reason for that is because the credit report that Equifax and TransUnion will provide the client with tends to be a, a fluffy version, right? It's just, here's the basic outline of your credit and how you've done made your payments on time, but their credit score is never the same as what I'm going to see when I pull a credit score because theirs is meant for consumer purpose only. Mine is meant for lending purposes. So it gets down to the nitty gritty. It really you know, tells you everything. Is this person at credit risk or not at credit risk? And so the score will be bang on exactly what we need it to be. Um, as far as, you know, it, um, it's, it's very accurate. Um, sometimes I'll have clients pull their credit bureau and they want me to go through it and translate it. And I have no problem in doing that. I'll have them email it to me. I'm like, Lucy, what does this mean? And how do I guess that, get this fixed? Because if there's an error, we need to get it fixed way ahead of time. Like ideally three months ahead of time, Sometimes you can get credit issues fixed within a month, but I've seen people take six months to fix credit issues. It depends on the severity of it, what proof you have, and who you get on the other line. Uh, right? It all depends on all those different variables and how fast you're actually going to get that fixed. So those are that's one thing that they can do, right? Is make sure that they do get their credit looked at. We fix any errors that are going on with it, and you know, clients to you know need to be upfront with me as well. Um, you know, if they've gone through a consumer proposal or if they've gone through a bankruptcy, we need to deal with that, right? Because those things will stay on your credit bureau for seven years. Um, if your credit, your bankruptcy will stay on there for seven years. If it's your first offense, if it's your second offense, it stays on for four. 14 years uh, and lenders and brokers will also get very suspicious if you're, you know, 40 years old and you have a zero credit score and nothing on there, because that means that you've gone bankrupt and you never reestablished, right? Because all of us, as soon as we get our credit card or, you know, if we're 18, 19, it starts to build up your credit. But if it starts out with nothing, if I see a blank credit bureau, I'm like, hmm, something's gone on here. You don't just, you know, you can't be 40 years old and have no credit whatsoever. So speaking of consumer proposals and uh, bankruptcies, in order to reestablish that um, you, and get a mortgage is you have to have two pieces of credit and re have them reestablished for two full years. So after you've paid it off. So for example, if you went through a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy in um, 2000, let's say just 2020, and it's 
and you paid off, it paid off 2021, let's say after 2021, that's when you can actually get a credit card or get a loan. Preferably you can get two at some point there and then rebuild that for two years. And then lenders will be willing to look at it, but it has to be two pieces of credit established for two years after the bankruptcy or the consumer proposal. Um, had a client a while back who had one, two pieces, but one was active during the uh, the consumer proposal and lenders, no lender that I contacted would use that because it was still active during that time. They wanted fresh credit, brand new. After. New, oh, a new credit. New credit after. Instrument of some kind, something yep. new. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, they're very but, specific. Mm. But if you're able to get those two pieces of credit, you don't have to wait the seven years necessarily after the bankruptcy. It's going to show up on your score, but if you're able to reestablish, then you might be able to get a mortgage sooner than that seven years. Exactly. It stays on the bureau. Everything will always stay on your credit bureau for seven years. So it's important just to get that started. And if you get a loan and a credit card, you're actually going to get more score or a higher score than if you just get a credit card. A credit card is going to show that you can make your minimum payment, which is 3% of the balance. And if you have two credit cards, it's just always varying 3% of the balance, depending on what your balance is. But if you have a loan, it shows that you can make a set payment, just like a mortgage, right? Every single month. So that's why it's good to have two different types. One's a loan, one's a credit card. Um, Capital One seems to be the most common credit card that people get to reestablish with, but you want to go away from that and go to uh, one of the big banks and get a regular credit card because you'll get a higher score through them because Capital One will have a secured card. So you give them $500, they'll give you a $500 credit limit, Um, but they are not the ideal one to have a card with after a certain point of time. So as soon as you can go to the bank and get a regular credit card, I would definitely recommend that. Uh, But you can build a really good credit score by just having two pieces of credit. Um, And it's just to show lenders that, okay, they made a mistake or maybe, you know, it could have been marital breakdown. It could have been an illness in the family. You know, it could have been just, hey, you didn't know how to manage your money back then, but now you've learned the hard way and now you're you're starting again. Uh, when I worked in the bank and I was a manager, I had someone who came in who was only 18 years old who went through a bankruptcy. So it can happen very, very young because her parents just stopped bailing her out. And they said, um, no, you're, you're on your own. So hopefully, that, I mean, that was many, many years ago, but hopefully that person's gotten better and hasn't gone through another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that would be a hard lesson at 18, but maybe that's a better time to be learning it than later I know. On. Yeah. I remember standing there in front of her and I was shaking my head. I couldn't believe that I was hearing her properly, that this is what happened because we were having issues with her bank account. And that unfortunately was, uh, her parents just said, no, you're on your own now. Huh? Lucy, do lenders have conflicts of interest in terms of who they uh, do business with, like, for example, is, is a mono line, certain mono lines, like companies offer better deals, um, and, and clients might get sucked into, uh, a lender that maybe is a good deal for their, for their lender and not them, not as good a deal for themselves. Hmm. I haven't heard of any conflicts of interest with, with the lenders, I'm trying to think, do you have an example of it? <laughs> no, I don't have an example, but I know in, in every business in the world, uh, there's 
you know, incentives for doing business with different types of people. So I'm just wondering, are lenders, um, you know, do you get compensated more for volume with a certain lender? Well, there are different pay types and all lenders will say, if you send a certain amount of business to us, we'll give you volume pricing or volume bonuses. That's definitely true. Um, I know that some lenders will go to builders, for example, and they'll they'll give them some incentives to send their clients to them. Not that I've ever seen it be a conflict of interest, but let's for, not forget bankers, uh, like mortgage specialists who work at the banks, uh, they aren't licensed. They're not licensed with RECA. They don't have the same types of guidelines that I have in that real estate agents have and that you would have, right? We have these guidelines and these rules that we have to follow, but the banks don't. Um, so it's, it's a little bit different, but I, I have seen that where they, they'll give them some incentive, you know, we'll, we'll pay for your, the legal fees. If you send your client to us, you know, when they work at, uh, when the client goes to the bank and they're buying from a builder. So there's interesting legal fees, like, (laughs) Like, does this happen commonly with certain lenders? They'll just pay this for was, clients legal fees. <laughs> this was years ago when legal fees weren't so expensive, right? Because now they're a lot more. Um, but that was, yeah, eons ago when I was working as a mortgage specialist. And um, the lender that I worked for, they would do different incentive things for the builder. Like, yeah, you know, we'll cover this for your client if you send them to us. So, of course, I was the one, you know, the recipient, the recipient in the end, right? Because I was the mortgage specialist, but after you become licensed and you realize all these things that you should be doing and that you have to be doing and, and things that, why were they allowed to do that? How are, how are they allowed to get away with that? But, you know, no one ever really talks about, uh, what should and shouldn't be done because everybody just trusts the big banks. Right. So everybody pretty much should, uh, expect to pay their legal fees nowadays. Is that correct? They should, they should expect. And if, even if your builder says that they're going to cover the legal fees, you know, the legal fees are being added onto your, onto your property price. Anyhow, <laughs> so, somebody's paying them, right? Somewhere along yes, exactly. The way. Somebody's paying them. Probably um, being passed on to you somewhere along <laughs> the way, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so yeah, that's, you know, that's the basics of, of a mortgage. And I mean, the whole process itself is, is pretty easy. And the banks, again, they don't, the, the big banks don't cover the process. Usually I, my clients will tell me, you know, I went in to see my banker. I've been banking there for 20 years and I don't know what's going on, but they haven't been told what the, what the process is uh, to do everything. So, you know, when my clients come in, they know, um, and I say come in as in, you know, with intake, whether it's email or phone calls, because nowadays no one really meets in, in person and everybody's so busy. But, you know, we we get an application started with the client, um, you know, review credit because we just talked about credit. I, I like them to be completely upfront and transparent with anything that they have on their credit or any concerns, because then I know what to look for, um, because sometimes I'll pull only the Equifax credit bureau because most everything is recorded on there. But then, oh, you know, Jane told me that she had this problem a few years ago, it's not showing up here. Maybe it's showing up on TransUnion. So then I'll pull up the TransUnion instead of being surprised when they find a home because the lender will always pull the TransUnion one. We don't have to. So I don't want any surprises. (laughs) So that's why I always tell clients, yeah, just tell me everything that's gone on in your life. You were going to say something, Heather? 
I'm just a little, I'm surprised to learn that there are two, that two different credit bureaus might be providing different information. And how does that work? It's challenging. (laughs) And how do you know what's reliable? I mean, and I guess this came up a little bit for me in the back of my brain when you were saying before too, that credit bureaus might issue to the consumer, like sort of a fluffier one, but then uh, give you a different and more accurate number. Yes. Because ours is I know it doesn't sound right, but we're only required to pull an Equifax credit bureau. And then when it goes to the lender, either the lender or the default insurer will pull the TransUnion one as well. Equifax is the one that's used probably 99.9% of the time. And sometimes creditors will report to both Equifax and TransUnion. Unfortunately, they don't always. So sometimes there'll be some weird thing that showed up on TransUnion, but doesn't show up on Equifax. But that's why Equifax is primarily the one that we look at is because they're accurate 99.9% of the time. But in that one, you know, 0.1% time that my client tells me, yeah, you know, back when I was 18, I had this on there and, you know, they're only 22 years old, still doesn't show up on Equifax, then I know, okay, I need to pull up TransUnion because if I don't, the lender or the insurer will, and then they'll find something on there. And then we've all wasted our time. Right. And it's good to know what's going on ahead of time. So yeah, you know, transparency is so very, very important in this business um, and with clients, because even if the client is embarrassed, you know, they made a stupid mistake or um, I had one client, he was from out East and I guess out East, if you had a speeding ticket or a parking ticket, they put it on your credit bureau, which I didn't know. (laughs) So um, when I pulled up his credit bureau, I said like, there's this weird thing on your credit bureau and it, it was like 50 bucks or something. And I said, like, what, what is this all about? And he's like, oh, yeah, that was like, I was 19 and I was living out east and it was a parking ticket that I got. And that's how they do it out there. I'm like, oh, okay. Number one, I didn't know that that's what they did. And number two, he hadn't told me about it. So it was just a little bit shocking until I was able to talk to him to find out what exactly is this thing for $50. That's fun here. (laughs) So you learn different things. (laughs) So this might be a little, we might be going down a bit of a tangent, but so anybody who you owe money to or have a regular bill with, it's up to them whether or not they report that debt and payment history to a credit bureau, or are there only certain people who are entitled or allowed to report debts to credit bureaus? Or I believe only companies like credit card companies and loan companies, mortgage, mortgages, you know, um, let's see, uh, mortgages, loans, credit cards, cell phone companies, they all report like your utilities are not reported on the credit bureau. But this is why it was a very odd thing because this was, uh-huh. I guess, with the municipality that reported it. And that's uh-huh. how they keep track of it. I got to tell you, Lucy, schools do as well, because we had a school fee and this is this one still bothers me. We have a school fee. We had a school fee that was like I don't know, twenty eight bucks or something like that, for uh, a school in Parkland County when we were living in Spruce Grove, and they didn't like try to collect it or anything. They just went right to collections agency and it got reported on our credit bureau. <laughs> Yes. If, it, if they go through a collection agency, the collection agency will put it on the credit bureau. But that's crazy. Twenty eight bucks. Yeah, and they went to collect. They went to collections. It's like what? What the why, heck? why didn't you just call us? 
Yeah, exactly. I'm glad you provided that example, Evan. So maybe there's some listeners out there who were in a similar situation and they think, oh, I had this unpaid parking ticket or $20 of unpaid school fees that was neglected. Is that something that's going to interfere with getting a mortgage? a one-time blip or uh, a couple of unpaid bills? Well, if it's a one-time blip and we can explain what it is, if it's something very minor, like Evan had mentioned, like, yeah, Evan, I'm not going to lend you a mortgage now because, you know, this $28, <laughs> that's, that's explainable. But let's say it's um, a large amount, okay? Then you can't excuse that. I've, I've seen clients who owe the cable company over $2,000, and they claim that they don't know what it's about. You don't owe the cable company more than $2,000 and not know about that. Now, if it was a small bill, you moved and it was like $100 and it shows up on the collection uh, from a collection agency and you've moved and it is possible that they were never, never, never able to get a hold of you. That is definitely possible depending on where you moved and, and such. Um, but larger amounts... Yeah. You know, it's case by case really. Right. And, uh-huh. and we have to put it together. It's almost like, you know, going and in a way, kind of like going to court, you know, the, the lender is the judge and we're the lawyer and we're trying to explain everything and like, make them understand that, you know, my client is, is being honest. They didn't know about this and this is the situation and this is how many times they moved. And, and yes, they changed their phone number and they were never, advised that there was something outstanding that's possible but when it's you know thousands of dollars then it, it's a little bit different because you know that mm, uh, they would have really tried hard to get a hold of you <laughs> if you owe them thousands of dollars evan how did you deal with that parkland county thing for 28 dollars you paid it but did you have to contact the collection agency to, yeah, to- I, I can't. I can't remember. I can't remember how we handled. I can't remember honestly how that went. We probably contacted the school and we're like, you know, what are you doing? And they were very unapologetic about the whole thing. And yeah, I don't know. If we probably had to pay the collection agency. I would imagine because presumably they sold their debt. that's what I would have thought but you know I just thinking just Parkland County a school like oh my gosh couldn't they just you know deal with it very odd (laughs) that is a very odd odd amount to to have there's very little that I like about my experience with Parkland um, school division yeah very little I'm glad I don't work there (laughs) I just live in It sounds like that kind of like, there's a little bit more art than science than um, involved in that as well. When lenders are looking at the, at the C's then like that kind of goes a little bit to character in a way. So like in Evan's example, it's a small one-time thing. It's easily explainable, but if there were sort of a history or a series of those kinds of things, then it's painting a bit of a different picture maybe of a, of the risk for the the lender exactly exactly so we we take the application we do the credit review we collect all documents from the client um and i communicate that with my clients via email send them a checklist of everything they need if you go to a bank you're not going to get that they'll just verbally tell you a lot of times what it is that they need um so you know sometimes clients forget to send them something and then you don't know what's going on it's like I'm on week one and it works two and I don't know what's going on with my application. Um, 
after I'm done everything, then that's when I finish up my pre-approval for my clients. Um, because you've taken all their information, you've collected all their documents, you know, their income, you've verified income, you verify that their credit is good. Or if, if there's been any issues, you've corrected them and you complete the pre-approval part of it. And then they can do some shopping at that time when they have an actual pre-approval in place. And that's a key difference between a pre-approval and a pre-qualification. A pre-qualification, you just walk into your bank, you tell them how much money you make. They don't verify it. You can tell me, I make $100,000 a year. And then they'll just plug it in. You tell them approximately how much debt you have, and they'll tell you how much you can go shop for. But what they didn't do was verify the income because maybe you don't make $100,000 a year. Maybe you are a part-time employee and, and you have only been working at that job for a year. So you can't use that because that's not guaranteed hours possibly, right? Um, you have to check the credit. You have to do all those things in order to be able to send a client out to go house shopping. Because think of all the time that people are wasting if the information isn't all verified. You're wasting the client's time the realtor's time, the person who is going to be showing their home, right? They're emptying out their house so that you can go look at it. And then maybe you didn't actually qualify for that because nothing was verified. So a pre-approval is key before you go shopping for a house. Um, and then the final approval is only done after we've done all that. The lenders checked the collateral, right? They verified the capacity, your capacity. I verified your capacity. Um, they check to make sure that you can um, you can make the payments. Everything is is taken care of, and they check the conditions. Um, and, you know, then we've got your final approval, and it's just a waiting game until you actually are able to move into the house. So there's, I was to my clients, so there's steps that we go through. And, you know, we're at this step and we're at this step and what do we need to do before you can, you know, pop the champagne and celebrate. But mind you, I always tell clients, don't do anything. The most important thing that I can tell any client when they're buying a house is do not change anything at all until you get keys in your hand. So that means don't buy a ton of furniture. Don't buy a new car. Don't quit your job. Don't change jobs. Don't do anything that could change your financial position until you get those keys in your hand. Um, I had someone who told a client one time that they could make some major changes to their employment situation. And the clients had only signed documents. They hadn't, um, they didn't have keys in their hands. And if I hadn't spoken to them, they would have made that change and lost their house and their deposit. So oh, no. yeah, most important thing is do not make any material changes until those keys are in your hand mm -hmm. because, you know, you don't want to be sleeping in your vehicle. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've heard horror stories of people going out and buying vehicles and then they have like a $600 a month loan payment and now they they're losing their house because of it. Right. That car wasn't worth it. No, I wouldn't imagine. So um, I jotted down two questions. Um, what about holding rates? I hear people saying that like, oh, they're going to hold the rate for me or I need to get something soon. What can you say about that? Well, holding rates, um, it's a, it's a lot of, there's a lot of fanfare about it, about holding rates, but it's not true to what it actually is. So a lender might give a rate right now on a five-year mortgage. That's a high ratio. High ratio means less than 20% down of 
but the rate that they're going to hold is going to be considerably higher. It's going to be, and I mean, I have to check today what it's at, but be more closer to 6%. It would probably be like 5.7, somewhere in that range, because they they will hold a higher rate for you because it's not what we call a live deal. So how you have to look at it is, okay, if, if you're buying a house today, you're going to get the best rate. If I'm thinking about buying a house and I want them to hold my rate, they're going to say, okay, Lucy, we're going to give you a rate way up here because we don't know if you're going to buy a house and we're not going to, you know, hold this cheap money down, you know, the money that's down here for you. So we're going to give you a rate up here. And if the rate goes above that, you're still protected. You've got that. So it's good in some instances, but it's not good in other instances. Here's one key reason. Uh, with a lot of these lenders, that rate hold is only good for a specific house, one house only. So I had a little while ago, wow. I had a client who purchased, who put an offer on a house and we had that rate hold in place. That deal fell through because the inspection fell through. So when my client went to purchase another home a month later, the lender would not honor that old rate hold because it was only good for one house only. Other lenders, they will say it's only good for those specific parameters. So if the client said, I'm going to be putting 10% down, but now they change it to 15%, well, it's changed. It's no longer the same file. Therefore, they will not honor the rate hold. So rate holds, they can sound very, very good, but they're not always. You have to have the perfect situation in order for them to be um, good for everybody because you can have things go sideways very quickly. Yeah you know, for my client, it did. And uh, it was, it was messy because I had to buy the rate down, which means using mo most of my commission to get the rate as low as I possibly could for my client. Um, and, you know, you, you try to do whatever you can to salvage the file for the client and make sure that they are not penalized for it, but lenders will never take blame for it and say, well, you know, yeah, we, we should be honoring this because actually on that particular, um, a certificate of uh, rate hold. It didn't say anything about it being only for one home yet. They said, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So definitely something to watch out for then if you're shopping and, and, and thinking about that or talking about a rate hold. Yeah. And most rate lenders will also only do rate holds on high ratio mortgages, not anything that's 20% down or more. They will only do the insured ones. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a fine line on whether you do it or you don't do it. Right. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. How about it? This might tie in Kim into the conversation. Um, what about, do you do work with home buyers or prospective home buyers who are looking at, I like often we're talking about how can you get the most house, right? How can I get the most money from a lender to get the nicest, the biggest, the highest price tag house? Um, but right now we're living through a time where interest rates are going higher and higher. So do you work, and I know that that's kind of built into how much the banks will lend, but do you also talk with clients or do you, you send them to someone like him to talk about budgeting for the future if we go into like 80s sort of levels of interest rates or do you have those kinds of discussions with um with prospective home buyers mortgagees 
<laughs> I'm getting it right. I'm yes. the G. Yes. Okay. I just call them borrowers. It's, uh, it's easier to call them borrowers. Oh, that is so much simpler. <laughs> You're going to catch me on that soon. I'll say mortgage or instead of mortgage. If my client does have a good amount of assets and I know that Kim would be able to help them, then definitely, yes, I would be referring them to someone like Kim to help them, um, especially for insurance. So like that's, that's a big thing. Um, you, I'm not an insurance person, so, you know, I don't talk very much about insurance with my clients, but they should have insurance, life insurance. So I always make sure that I discuss it a little bit and give them options. If they have investments, if they need help, then definitely Kim would come into it. Cause I, I love to have people in my circle who can help the clients to be able to maximize their savings for, you know, a home purchase later on, or if they've purchased a home and they you know, possibly want to purchase another home in the future or rental properties, oh. you really need to manage your finances that way. Uh -huh. So it, it depends, right? It depends on my clients. A lot of my clients are first time home buyers or only second time home buyers. So they don't have a lot and prices have gone up a lot. <laughs> When you look at homes, you know, 20 years ago, you were looking at, you could buy a really nice house for, you know, in the low two hundreds. And now you can't really buy anything decent. That's less than 400,000. Right. So a lot of people are using a lot of their funds, a lot of their funds to purchase homes. So I don't know what Kim's experiencing with, uh, with her clientele. You can <laughs> give us some insight into what kind of clients you're seeing these days. Well, I think this is a good opportunity for me to give a plug to the new accounts that are popping up uh, in January called the First Home Savings Account. Mm -hmm. So these things are meant uh, to help people in the home buying process. They are a combination of tax-free savings accounts and RSPs. So you can borrow from these accounts. You don't have to pay them back. They grow tax-free. You get a refund, just like an RSP when you add money to it. There's all these great bells and whistles on there because the government is aware that the home buyer's plan for RSPs isn't enough to get people uh, the keys to their home. Uh, they need to offer uh, more incentives uh, to save and to build up a bigger pool of money to buy these more expensive houses. So uh, I'm sure we'll do a podcast on the first home savings accounts, uh, maybe maybe very soon and chit chat about that, but that'll be helpful for you, Lucy and, and all your pals, because it, 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 it will um, accept monies from tax-free savings accounts that people need to transfer over RSPs that were previously funded. You will be able to transfer those over to the new accounts uh, to get them started. So there's lots of details about them mm. to talk about, and I don't need to start that out uh, right now, but I think it'll be super helpful for you, Lucy, in the future when people want to buy a house and they need to pull money. Oh, definitely. I, I need more information on that. <laughs> you can tune in for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so Heather, you got to get started on that podcast. Yeah, I'm writing it, I'm writing it down. I'm writing it down. <laughs> Luckily, our potential consumers is definitely definitely needed. 
right? Because there's been a few programs in place, um, like the shared equity program that really wasn't that beneficial. Only a few people would qualify for it because there was a threshold for how much money you could earn. And then you have to share the equity. So when you decide to sell the home back, it would sell the home, you have to pay the government back, um, whatever, well, they're half of the equity. So even though you may have not got because it was, they would help you with your down payment. And I haven't done one because none of my clients qualified. So they would help you with your down payment. So maybe the down payment they're giving you was just $5,000. But when you go to sell the property, um, possibly there's $20,000 worth of profit in there, but you have to give half of it back to the government. So you're giving them 10 when they only gave you five. So a shared equity program that they had they think started last year wasn't really the best program. So I'm hoping that this new program is going to be better for our, our clients, for our consumers. Interesting. Okay. I have one more question on my list that I, I would like to know the answer to. Uh, at the beginning, we were talking about different reasons why you would look at different types of lenders. And you mentioned prepayment penalties a few times. So could you give us a quick primer on what a prepayment penalty is and when those um, situations that you might be have to pay one might occur in, in people's lives? Okay. So when you sign a contract for your mortgage, that is a signed contract. You have to keep it for the amount of time that you said you would keep it for. So uh -huh. if you were keeping it for five years and you are now in the process of selling your home and you don't want to port your mortgage, I mean, porting your mortgage means transferring the mortgage from property A to property B. Let's say for some reason you can't do that, whether you're, if you're with ATB, for example, ATB only lends in Alberta. So if you're moving to BC and you are selling your home, you have to get rid of your mortgage. You will have to pay the penalty to break that contract. Or if you win the lottery, get an inheritance, pay off your mortgage, you have to pay the penalty. And the penalty is a complex calculation that they give you, that they give us. Um, well, they give us the amount anyhow, and it's essentially the amount of interest that you, they, that you are owing the bank for the amount of time that's left over. Yeah, that's if it's a fixed rate mortgage. It's if it's a variable rate mortgage, then it's typically three months interest and that's all. So I've got a combination of clients that have both. I have one client I'm working with right now who has a variable rate mortgage. So his penalty to get out of the contract is just three months interest. So we can roughly estimate what his penalty would be. And then another client that I'm working with right now, he's in a fixed rate mortgage. So he's going to owe them basically all the interest that he's not going to be paying them for the two years that's left on his term. So if you have a if you plan on moving soon or you know, moving to the States or you're unsure about what your life holds for you, that this is, I'm not going to be living in this house for very long. Sometimes it's better to go with a shorter term so that your penalty will be smaller, right? Because oh. if you go with, let's say a 10 year term, your penalty could be absolutely astronomic because you're going to be paying a lot of interest, right? They, they calculate it based on what you who are paying them and what the interest rate is at, at that time. So there could be a, a huge amount of payments that you'll have to make. But if you're with a monoline, your payment, your penalty would be considerably less than it is with a big bank. And I know that I, um, 
I've sent many clients um, some information on that and, and their monolines are called fair penalty lenders for a reason, right? It's because they are going to charge you a lot less. And there's not a lot of circumstances that clients need to, to deal with that, but there are sometimes things that happen in our lives. We have to move, we have to sell our house and we're not going to buy another one. We're just going to rent for whatever reason it may be. Right. Uh-huh. Um, and then you have to pay that penalty and, you know, it's, it's something that clients should always discuss with the mortgage broker to see if really that's the only way they can do it. Because, you know, maybe if you are moving, you can port your mortgage and clients don't even know that they can port their mortgage. So we find out first, you know, what's the easiest and most financially savvy way to do this, right? Because if it doesn't make financial sense, then we have to look at, you know, what we can do to, to make everybody happy, as happy as we can be. <laughs> we have to pay the bank even more money yeah <laughs> i know nobody wants to do that but those are the only yeah. circumstances that you would have you wouldn't have too many circumstances but that's also another reason why i try to avoid using the lenders that are only province specific because if you transfer provinces or even if there's a small likelihood you'll have to pay the penalty where if you're with one of the others like kim had mentioned you know like mcap right they're all over the country you can um, just transfer your mortgage over there. They'll typically make you pay the penalty first. And then once the new mortgage advances, they will give you your money back. And that's because from back in the days uh, when they would always just collect the, uh, they would collect the penalty from the, from the client um, after the fact, but the client was willing to, to pay it. And it, there were smaller penalties, but now penalties are higher, you know, or the population is different. So they want to make sure that you're actually going to get the mortgage with them before they give you your money back. <laughs> well, smart. That makes smart business wise, smart sense business wise for them. For them, yeah. <laughs> for the clients, it's hard, right? Because if you have like a five thousand dollars penalty, it's like, oh my god, you know, and you're buying, right. a house. and you're moving, and trying to buy a new home, yeah, yeah. yeah Back absolutely. in the day, penalties were really, really low, right? It's like you know, nine hundred dollars when houses were like you know one hundred and twenty thousand um, dollars. So your penalty would be really, really low. They'd collect it from the client, no problem. Now it's like, yeah, five thousand. That's a lot. That's a lot of money. Huh. Yeah, I can attest to that. I used to, uh, the firm where I articled, they did a lot of real estate and uh, we definitely did, um, I did a few street capital mortgages and certainly MCAP was a common one that we would see. Those are the only two um, monolines ones that I recognized. But um one of the big aspects of that meeting with a lawyer at that firm was they would go over the prepayment allowances, like how much you could pay over and above mm. uh, your, your monthly mortgage payments without being penalized and what the penalties were for closing early. And um, yeah, they seemed quite unpleasant, those penalties. Mm-hmm. Usually, I, I mean, the ones I remember are for the, uh, you know, the main lenders, the banks. But there you yeah, go. They weren't pleasant. And of course, because we've got larger mortgages now, those penalties are going to be higher than what they were 10, mm-hmm. 15 years ago, right? Because they're all the main calculation is the amount of the mortgage. Oh. So the larger the mortgage, the higher the penalty. Right. Well, Heather, you got through all of your questions. 
Well, I always have 1,000 other questions that will fill a whole second episode after the end of these. I feel like we always just scratch the surface and then I have all these other things. But yes, I did get through my burning questions. What about you, Kim? I I mean, Lucy had a lot to offer and... uh... I, I, you know, we, we appreciate it so, so much when guests come in just ready to go, well, passionate about their jobs, lots of tips and tricks to give to people. And I think you delivered today. Thank you so much, Lucy. You did a great job. Oh, thank you very much. I hope that I didn't bore anybody. <laughs> well, you didn't bore us. Not here. And speak yeah. for everybody listening. Like if they're not into mortgages or they don't need a mortgage, maybe they were bored, but I found it really interesting. And I just echo what Kim says, like, what we want to accomplish with this podcast is just lowering the barrier to entry for knowledge. And, and like, there's mystery about mortgages out there. There's no doubt about that. I mean, you see it every day and just like there's mysteries about the law and our whole thing is we, we just want to remove that mystery aspect of it. And if somebody can just listen to this before they start looking for mortgage, then hopefully they'll, you know, they will have got some really valuable information. So thanks a lot, Lucy. I think it was great. My pleasure. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for coming on and um, take care of those kitties and doggies. And hopefully we'll have you back to talk a little bit more about mortgages and lenders and good financial practices. Sounds fabulous. Thank you so much for having me on. Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be, legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Malarick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, RJFE, a subsidiary of Raymond James Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. When providing life insurance products, financial advisors are acting as insurance representatives of RJFE. Darkness of the dales dissipates, declines because of he who turns.